Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish. The Rwandan genocide took place between the 7th of April and the 15th of July, 1994. During this time, uh, approximately over half a million Tutsi and moderate Hutu were killed by Hutu militias. Barry Saltzman is an award-winning contemporary artist. Since 2014, he has worked on projects that address trauma and memory, often related to the recurrence of genocide. He is my guest now to reflect on photography as a tool for keeping the memory of genocide alive. Barry, welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Hi there. Thank you very much for having me. Um, Barry, right off the bat, actually, let me just, just say something about your uh, introduction. Um the numbers that I have referenced through multiple sources are actually quite a lot higher. Um, the the number is sort of 800,000 to a million Tutsi uh, and others were killed. Um, based on my sort of experience, um, that number is definitely closer to a million and possibly over if you bear in mind that just the mass grave that I witnessed was about 85,000 people, and that was 24 years after the genocide. So if they're still uncovering mass graves of that number, you have to assume that it's higher than the 800. The number that the Tutsi people in the government of Rwanda most often use is over a million people killed in 100 days, which actually made that the most rapid rate of killing in modern history. Which is really frightening. And we're, we're sitting now in the hundred days that this, um, happened. And for you, the, the concept of never again is something that you want to kind of perpetuate because it has happened again. Yeah. So I, I started working on this, um, sort of theme of genocide specifically, um, in dealing with the Holocaust about 10 years ago in my art practice and that work dealt very specifically with my maternal family um, that were directly impacted by the Holocaust. They were from Rhodes Island, which at the time was Italian, but today is part of Greece. And um, the entire Jewish community from Rhodes was deported. So when I was at art school, I did my master's thesis looking at that part of my heritage. And I, as part of that, identified as many people as I could find around the world who were born on roads and were still alive. And many of those people um, had survived Auschwitz. Of course, the vast majority did not. And um, there's a big video. The major part of that work is a video component, which is actually available on my website. Um, and when that video screened at festivals around the world, I would so often have people say to me, wow, we know that story. You know, we may not know that lady in the white shirt, but we know the story. And and that, like, upset me enormously because I would always say, well, if we know the story, how do you explain us doing it again and again and again? And that's what really got me to focus on a way to address this this failing of never again by looking specifically at the recurrence of 20th century genocide, which is really where, where my practice focuses. And of course, you, you traveled to Rwanda and were you absolutely horrified by what you saw? Well, you know, interestingly, I don't focus my practice in any way on a sort of photojournalism, um, kind of practice. I don't, 
I don't go to um, these uh, places of trauma at the time the trauma was committed because I'm very interested in this notion of of memory and specifically this relationship between landscape and memory. So when I was in Rwanda in 2018 was 24 years after the genocide. And I specifically went there to look at this sort of abstract concept that I work on, which is this sort of relationship between landscape and memory and this abstract metaphor of the landscape as witness to to trauma and genocide, because it is a metaphor. Like us, the landscape sees everything. Like us, it does nothing. And like us, it in fact flourishes. Um, and I was in Rwanda working on this sort of abstract landscape idea, and completely by chance, a news story broke that a new mass grave had just been discovered in Kabuga village on the outskirts of Kigali. Now, bear in mind that was 24 years after the genocide. So within a day or two of that news story breaking, I went to the site. And it was in very early days of excavation. Um, and they first thought, you know, there may be a few thousand bodies they would recover. But I was there as clothes and human remains were coming out of the ground. And I was with... um representatives of the Kigali Genocide um, Memorial, and both of those two people I was with had survived the genocide and had identified where their loved ones, their family members, had fallen by clothes that were being recovered from a mass grave. So, so them seeing that again brought, you know, these emotions and this trauma right to the, to the surface. Um, and so we stayed for a little bit, really, because I wanted to use that experience to inform my major body of work, which deals with landscape. But I had no intention of documenting that. It's it's not the kind of you know work that I do. So we looked. We spent 45 minutes an hour. It was incredibly traumatizing for the the two gentlemen who were guiding me around um, these sites. And so we left. Um. And I took a few reference pictures just with my phone, and that was it. And then I had this, like, for the days afterwards, this overwhelming feeling of, like, a duty, like a responsibility. As an artist, I I had to do something. Because if I was not willing to confront this head-on, I had no right to ever expect my audience to confront these issues. And so we got permission to go back, and I started this series of selecting um, items, clothing items that were being excavated from the ground um, to to humanize the victims who had died the most inhumane kind of death possible. And um, I laid out the garments on the ground and shot them one by one as though I was working on a portrait of an individual as opposed to a still life of um, an object. And it was, it was the most extraordinarily gruesome and, and upsetting and traumatizing experience, particularly for the two survivors I was with and the volunteers at the site. And I kept wanting to stop. I felt like I couldn't put them through it. And then I kept sort of thinking about so much of the work that I had done, and particularly the words of French philosopher George Didi Huberman, where he says, we cannot allow ourselves to invoke the unimaginable. We can't say it's so awful, I can't imagine, and turn away. 
And he says we have to force ourselves into that oppressive place of imagining. And I remembered the story of a witness who had told us how she had survived by pretending to be dead under a pile of bloody, dismembered bodies. And she heard one of the perpetrators say to the other, I just need one more and I'll have killed a hundred people. And I thought to myself, if this woman could endure that and hear these, these demeaning words, reducing humanity to these raw numbers, if she could endure that, I could stay present to, to document 100 of these, what I call portraits, which were the clothes of the victims. And that's what I did. When we shot a hundred, I, I, we left. And that's what this, the body of work that we're talking about is called The Day I Became Another Genocide Victim. It's also available on my website. And it is what I describe as a series of 100 posthumous portraits of genocide victims as imagined by what they were wearing on the last day of their lives. It is an extremely moving exhibition. I had a look at it. A lot of the of the portraits, if we're going to use that word, are from children, children's clothing, children's bags, children's underpants. Um, why so many children? You know, it's, it's a great question, and it was um, sort of a very conscious process I went through because I feel like, you know, as an artist, when you work on such emotional subject matter, you have to guard against the the temptation to be, you know, um, even subconsciously to be emotionally manipulative, to play too heavily on the emotion. And we were partway through, and I noticed the same thing you pointed out, that the the volunteers who worked on the site were giving me a disproportionate number of children's clothing. And I said to them, you know, I, I want to be... Um, I want a fair representation of the people who were killed at this site. And they said to me, which is true, they said, but Barry, you asked for complete garments, which I did because I felt like complete garments let me imagine the person. I was taking a portrait of a person, whereas a garment fragment doesn't have that same, is not rich with that same, you know, imagination of, of the individual. And she said to me, you asked for whole garments, um, but in Rwanda, most adults were chopped to pieces by machete, and all that remains are rags. And so that's why there is a disproportionate amount of children's um, clothing in this project. There are um, a couple of times where I did shoot a rag, or twice I, I, I shot a rag out of the 100 portraits, um, as a way to, I think, speak to the millions of people that were hacked to pieces beyond recognition. Barry, you also titled each portrait. How did you come up with those different sentences? Um, you know, I wish I had an, an answer for you about that. It was just such a an intuitive thing for me. Um, so each piece has a text in the first person that says, I was wearing my lucky number 12 T-shirt or I was wearing my favorite party dress. And it was just this feeling that I felt as I was shooting the pieces. But it was really important to me to try to share with the viewer 
this deeply personal sense that there was a human being in that garment as opposed to a still life of an object. And so I didn't really think about it. It was clear to me that there was a person there who was saying, I was wearing this T-shirt, a white T-shirt, or I was carrying my little doggy backpack. Um, and I, w- I wish I had a, a more complete answer. It was just this, this complete intuitive gut visceral sense that I was shooting a portrait of a person who had a voice. And, and that line and that, that text in the first person for me was bringing that voice to the viewer of my work. In terms of people who say things like, you know, it's 75 years since the Holocaust, Jews need to move on, or it's 29 years since the Rwandan, when do we move on? What is your response to them? You know, I, I mean, I think that's, I think that's why I do this work. You know, the year after Rwanda, we had Bosnia. Um, and I've done a whole body of work on the genocide in Srebrenica. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think we need to go beyond pointing out what's happening on our watch today in Ukraine to, to, to negate that, that line of argument. Where to from here, Barry? Um, so, I, so next year is the 30th anniversary of the genocide in Rwanda, and I have uh, three uh, museums that will be showing the work to commemorate the 30th anniversary. It'll be on show in Cape Town at the Holocaust and Genocide Center. Um, it'll be on show at The Hague, which is very important because the, the, the Rwandan um, war criminal, genocide criminals were tried at The Hague, um, and then and it'll be shown at a Holocaust and Human Rights Museum in Belgium. So those are three big shows that I have coming up. In terms of the next area I'd like to focus on, it's the Cambodian genocide. And so I'm still in the process of doing my research and pre-production to plan to to shoot in Cambodia next. Not easy work at all, but certainly very important. And obviously, if anybody would like to see Barry's um, work, you can do so on his website. I, I had a look at your video. It was really, really poignant, moving, touching, beautiful, sad. So I'd just like to say thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate you taking the time. That was Barry Seltzman, award-winning contemporary artist, and he does a lot of work on trauma and memory.